Cat Disgusted is a show about veterinary nursing. It is not a show about how to cure your sick pet. If your animal is sick, take it to the vet. Don't be a crazy person and use a podcast to cure your puking cat, dog, chinchilla, etc., etc. I think they would tell you the same thing. If they could. Which they can't. Which makes it hard. You know what's up. Take them to the vet. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for the best of times and the worst of times in veterinary nursing. What the hell are we doing? Well, it's Chihuahua snapping feral cats flailing all while working with the baddest bitches in the business. I'm your host, Nicole Dickerson, RBT, and this... It's how our week went. Oh my God. What is up, everybody? It has been ages uh, since we've come together like this uh, and, and had a moment uh, with Cat Disgusted. So I figured it was high time. What's up? Uh, sorry, it's taken me a, a long time to get another episode on here. I feel like many things have happened since we spoke. Uh, let's see. I had my trip to Spain and to Portugal, which was totally awesome. And, uh, then my computer died, which was less than awesome. Uh, and, and it's taken me kind of all that time to get my stuff together to record this episode. My computer is working now. Um, it's, it was a stupid thing. It was like a visual chip in the logic board, was faulty and like they knew that they were all oh yeah this is covered like apple's you know we we know this is a problem so i'm like um i've had this computer for eight years and and you knew it was a problem and you waited until it literally okay I know this is totally like way off veterinary topic, but I have to tell you the story so i was watching youtube at two in the morning like i do after work and my computer literally made a fart noise and died like that's what happened. Like I was watching this really funny chick named Mamry Hart, who like, if you're a YouTuber fan, you know who she is. She does this show called You Deserve a Drink, which is hilarious. And I was watching the blooper outtakes from Mamry Hart's You Deserve a Drink. And my computer literally went and then shut down. Like it's like the screen like split and it looked like half the screen was like, it was almost like the, the, like what I, the image like kind of scooted off to the side and tried to repeat itself on the other side. And then I restarted it and my iPhoto library was like, I have to reorganize this entire library and do some repairs. Yes or no. And I was like, um, yeah, because I want my photo. So yes. And then the screen went and went like this kind of poo brown color and it never really restarted after that. Like then I got the gray screen of death the whole time. So yeah, I took it to the genius bar and they were like, oh yeah, yeah, that happens. Really? 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 It makes a fart noise and dies. That's what happens. Oh, well, anyway, it was free. Like the fix was free. I mean, I had to be without my computer for a couple of days, but oh, anyway, off topic. So let's talk about some ha- like some more exciting things. I was going to say happy things. And then it occurred to me that like all the dogs having balls in Europe might not be a happy thing for everybody. But that's what I was going to talk about. Uh, I, when I was in Spain and Portugal, we noticed that almost all of the animals over there are intact. And by intact, I mean all the boy dogs have balls and all the girl dogs have uteruses and girl parts. And you can tell because, you know, there's like pendulous testicles and pendulous 
mammaries everywhere you go. And it's not that they're neglected or it's not that they're not well cared for because I'm not well cared for because you know Europeans they love their pets like they love their dogs. And so I was kind of fascinated by this that despite the fact that there were all these dogs walking around Barcelona that were obviously very well cared for and loved dearly all were intact, which like in my profession is usually a sign of either irresponsibility or neglect in some way. And that's not always the case, but a lot of times it is. So I tried to like research this a little bit and I don't think I did a very good job because I don't really have any new information for you. I, I couldn't really find, if you Google like Spaniards intact dogs, you don't really get anything. Or if you Google like dogs in Lisbon with testicles, well, you get some interesting Google images, but you don't really get any information like I was seeking. So I'm theorizing a little bit. I, I think the reason why this may be is because they have a long history of like working dogs, like herding dogs, hunting dogs, you know, that when we were in the mountains in Spain, in Northern Spain, they had an entire, like part of their, um, we went to this like monastery that they turned into a hotel and also into like a museum. And there was an entire like wall plaque dedicated to their mountain dogs, to Pyrenees mountain dogs. They love them. They're like, they're if without them, they would not be able to do the I was going to say do the sheeping, do the herding of the sheep that they need to do in order to survive in the mountains. So I think that the working dog has a long history and working dogs traditionally are intact dogs because if you have a really awesome working dog, you want that bloodline to continue. You want to have lots of really awesome working dogs. Um, when we were in Alaska, we noticed a lot of the sled dogs that um, were part of this group that we went and visited. We went and visited this one particular kennel with this like Iditarod winning uh, group of dogs. And the guy said, he was like, you know, they're intact because we want them. We want to continue the bloodline of really good dogs. But if they're really crappy dogs, then we neuter them or spay them because we don't want the crappy dogs to continue with a bad bloodline. And I was like, okay, that is totally a responsible thing to do. So I think that may be the origin of the intact dogs in, at least in Spain and Portugal that I could tell. Um, but anyway, it's, it's a very long way of introducing what our next topic is going to be for today, uh, which is the spaying and neutering of cats and dogs. Now, most of the people who listen to this show, um, I think, know what spaying and neutering is and what that means. Uh, but just in case there's some of you out there who don't, which is totally fine. I mean, like, not everybody's a crazy person like me and goes into animal medicine for a living. Um, well, I'll, I'll talk about what that is. So so what is spaying and neutering? So basically, this is a, it's, it's a surgical procedure that removes the reproductive organs of a cat or a dog or other types of animals so that they can't reproduce. Um, so in spaying, what we're doing, and spaying is for girls. Uh, there's no neutering of girls. We neuter the boys and we spay the girls. Uh, spaying is removing the uterus and ovaries. And then when we talk about neutering, what we're talking about is uh, removing the testicles. So spaying is an abdominal surgery. And I, I've talked about abdominal surgeries on this show before. Um, spaying is really 
it, it, the procedure to begin a spay is exactly the same. You're going to cut through uh, what we call the linea alba, which is the, the into their abdomen uh, and expose their their uterus. Now there's very now there's there's various uh, degrees of how large that incision will be, depending on your surgeon, depending on the procedure that you're going to do. Uh, but animals spays are different than human hysterectomies or human uh, C-sections. Animal C-sections are different than human C-sections. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, but, you know, because humans walk upright, right? We walk on our two legs around. Um, we have a lot of abdominal muscle to keep ourselves upright. Some of us more than others. <laughs> My, I personally don't got a lot of that. Uh, but in regard, but in comparison to Todd, let's say my kitty, or in comparison to uh, my friend's dog Burroughs, you know, we he has a whole lot less abdominal muscle in that area than I do because he doesn't have to stand upright all the time on his two back legs, but I do. So um, there's less uh, there's less of that musculature to cut through. Like with people when they're doing hysterectomies, they actually are doing hy- hysterectomies laparoscopically these days, which is kind of interesting. Where they will, you know, insert what they what they call ports, I believe, <laughs> into your into incisions in your abdomen. Then they blow your abdomen up full of air and suck out the parts that they don't want through those ports with various instruments. And it's actually a lot less traumatic for the human because you don't have as huge large incision. Um, Animals, however, because they have less musculature down there, you can more easily cut into their into their abdomen, kind of like up, like vertically, like from the bottom of their sternum to uh, to like right, right between their rear legs are. That whole area has a whole lot less muscle in it than a person. Um, C sections in people, uh, you know, they cut kind of like below your navel, kind of. Now I'm saying this because I'm remembering like where my mom's C-section scar was from me because I was a breech baby. I was turned the wrong way around, go figure, um, and had to come out surgically. So it's probably a little bit different nowadays, ladies. Sorry, this is like my lesbian moment where I don't really know what's going on in pregnant women world. Um, but it that it's a lower incision because if you like cut a chick up and down for their C-section, it's a big big old freaking bloody mess as we learned from Grey's Anatomy. So that's so so the spay is is an abdominal surgery and I kind of want to make that clear because I feel like I don't want it to be over like you can't oversimplify the spay. Like the spay is a more invasive procedure than a neuter is because the the animal's testicles are kind of outside their body cavity. So you don't have to go, there's less of a risk of things going really, really bad. There are still things that can go bad, but you have more of a risk of bleeding, of infection because you're opening up an animal's abdominal cavity when you do a spay. Um, Now, for the spay, they use this great instrument called a spay hook, uh, which almost looks like a, I always thought it looked like a dental instrument when I started doing this job, but it's like a long, kind of a long metal stick with a hook on the end. And you're hooking onto uh, the uterus and using that spay hook to what we call exteriorize the, the part of the uterus. So you can see it and you're going to remove the uterus and the ovaries because the ovaries are what are producing all the hormones. So uh, depending on how large the animal is, depending on how like the type of environment you're doing these spays in. I say that because doing like spays in specialty medicine is very different than doing spays in shelter medicine. Um, That incision can be very large or it can be sometimes really, really, really small. Sometimes cat spay incisions, it's like you barely even see them. They're like 
like the length of your thumbnail. Like some of these doctors are amazingly talented and they can do that. Uh, the neuter that you do, uh, what you're doing is you're making incisions over each testicle and you're removing so that, so like the scrotum, which is the skin around the testicles, those that stays, uh, but you make an incision in the skin and you remove the testicles themselves. So you leave their penis, they get to keep that. Uh, but the testicles themselves, those go away. So that's the basics of what happens. I mean, and like, that's like the way basics of what, of what happens for spays and neuters. Um, now I did mention briefly specialty spays versus like, you know, the shelter high volume spays. So I did a shift, uh, at a, at a shelter, uh, hospital where they would do, it was a spay and neuter clinic. So that was what those guys did for a living is they spayed and they neutered animals nothing else. That was what they did. So there'd be like 30 animals a day that they would do. And they always hated the big dog spay days. Cause like inevitably there was like more of a risk for bleeding and like they were harder to recover and like that. So they had to work harder. So inevitably, inevitably they dread those days, but uh, they did a mix of dogs and cats and like, yeah, like 30, 35 animals a day. It was amazing how much work these guys did. And I, I only subbed in there a couple times and I was like, it boggles the mind. Like how can there possibly be four days a week, 10 hours a day, and there's 30 to 35 animals every single day that all need to be spayed or neutered. I'm like, where are they coming from? You know, like we're spaying and neutering these things. Like how the hell are there more of them every day? Uh, So in a situation like that, you're moving quickly. So what we used to do is we used to give, uh, now this is, a lot of this is going to sound like review because we've talked about surgery before, but basically we give uh, a drug to induce anesthesia and then we place a tube in their trachea, an endotracheal tube uh, to protect their airway and we use gas anesthetic to maintain anesthesia throughout the procedure. Now these animals, because we had to move quickly, um, unlike the surgeries I've talked about in the past, they don't have an IV catheter, they're not on IV fluids, um, the surgery goes really, really fast because those doctors are freaking pros at, at spaying and neutering these dogs. So they're not under anesthesia very long. So the idea is you do it quick enough where their blood pressure is not going to drop low enough to need the extra IV fluids, to need any kind of IV drugs. Uh, and so you move quick. Plus there's like 35 animals behind you, so you ain't got a choice. Uh, so they would do the cat neuters. They would just do in the, sur- like they had two, they had an OR where they would do this, the big dog spays where they kept it more sterile. And then um, the big dog neuters would also happen in the OR because it was more sterile there. But like cat neuters because they're so fast and they just kind of just boop boop balls are gone they would like line them up on the tables and the kitties would just get an intramuscular injection of an anesthetic drug and a pain medication to knock them out the magical kitty magic um i don't know if we've talked about kitty magic on this show but i guess now is a good time <laughs> there's a combination of drugs that we can use which is a um a way to magically get kitties to do whatever it is that you need to do with them. Now, most of the time in the hospital that I work in, kitty magic is reserved for the kitties that you can't touch. Uh, So like the ones that we have to, you know, draw blood on or get an IV catheter in or even take x-rays, anything like that, and kitty is not having it, um, that's when we use the kitty magic. So generally it's a combination of a sedative called dextomator, uh, which is a drug called dexmedetomidine. And then, um, say that five times fast. And then 
a opiate, uh, either buprenorphine or butorphanol, which is a pain medication. And then the third one is a magical drug called ketamine, which is a dissociative anesthetic. So you combine those three, dug- three drugs in a syringe in very, very small amounts. It's usually 0.1, 0.1, and 0.1, like a tenth of a, tenth of a cc, tenth of a, of a mil milliliter and you give that intramuscularly to these bad cats and that's generally how we use it in our practice now for the spay neuter clinic that i was at um they used it as uh, as what we would call a pre-medication so they would use that and give give it to the kitties intramuscularly they would do it to like you know two or three cats and then uh, the kitties would be anesthetized. You'd see them in their in their cage. They'd kind of like start to look a little stone and then burp, then they just face plant. You're like, yay, kitty's done. So then we'd bring the cat out, floppy kitty, and intubate them uh, so that we could protect their airway and then use gas anesthetic to maintain their anesthesia. So you so kitty magic is great for many things, as you can see. Uh, the cats that, so I've talked about the cats being neutered all on the, like, just line them up and neuter them. Cause that's super fast. Um, this cat space would all happen in the OR as well for the same reason. It's, it's abdominal surgery. You just want it to be more sterile. Now this is different than what happens in the hospital I work in now, which is a specialty hospital. First of all, in specialty, you're not really doing spays and neuters on their own as a procedure. Like it can be, it can be a bonus. Like if you already um, are doing a surgery for something else and the owner wants you to neuter their dog while he's under anesthesia, sure. Um, then the surgeons will do it. Like we had a little tiny Yorkshire Terrier the other day was having both of its anal sac glands removed, a bilateral anal sacculectomy. And he was a little intact male dog. And so the surgeon neutered him while he was under anesthesia, just because it was easy and it's less, he doesn't have to go under under anesthesia all over again to have the balls taken off. what that means is, you know, in, in our practice, they're going to have an IV catheter. They'll be on IV fluids. They'll probably get a pain control patch afterwards that they'll wear called a fentanyl patch. Um, they will be staying in the hospital possibly overnight. And it's not to say that that's necessarily better. I mean, there's more bells and whistles, that's for sure. But I think that having access for people to be able to afford to spay and neuter their pets is really important. And you know, all those things with the IV catheter and the fluids and all that, it all costs a lot of money. And so I feel like the shelter has totally has its uh, time and place, just like the specialty service has has its um, time and place for, for this type of surgery as well. Um, now, there are extremes of doing those uh, big group spays and neuters. There, uh, I worked with a guy um, at my old job who used to go to Romania, and he would fly to Romania and would uh, do these like spay neuter thons in the countryside of Romania where there's like no resources. And he literally, people would like donate their kitchen table and like open up their homes to these spay and neuter teams. And they would go like by candlelight sometimes and be doing these spay and neuter operations with like all of the scalpels and um, sterile drapes and everything that they could like stuff into their carry-on suitcases or checks, (laughs) not carry-on, but the suitcases that they checked flying to Romania to do these, um, to, to keep these animals, animal population under control. Um, I knew another, I know another technician now who, uh, 
is part of a, a feral cat spay and neuter uh, organization that flies to third world countries and does these huge spay neuter thons like sometimes like in the jungle like they'll go to uh, they were in Hawaii they went to Molokai in Hawaii and they set out all these feral cat traps and they just trapped all of the feral kitties and brought them back underneath some tents and spayed and neuter them to control the cat population on Molokai so it you you kind of work with what you got you know it's it's an important thing that you have to do uh, in parts of the world. And if you don't have all of the bells and whistles of specialty, that's okay. I feel like you kind of got to work with what you got. There's a risk-benefit ratio there. Uh, Other types of animals that you can spay, you can spay and neuter rats. Uh, You can spay and neuter rabbits. In fact, spaying your rabbit, and this is something I just learned when I started to work at uh, at my new job that spaying your rabbit can actually prolong their life ex- like totally I was gonna say excrementally but that's not quite the right word <laughs> they exponentially you can extend a rabbit's life by many, many years uh, by spaying it. And it's because there's like a huge percentage of rabbits that get reproductive cancers if they're not spayed. It's something crazy, like 70% of rabbits will develop, like female rabbits will develop some kind of uh, reproductive cancer if they're intact. Versus if you spay them, you totally eliminate that possibility, which is great. Uh, same thing with dogs and cats, though. Uh, you're not just controlling pet population, but you're also preventing them uh, from having other types of medical problems. Um, there can be a large incidence of mammary tumors that can happen in dogs that aren't spayed. Uh, you can have male dogs that have problems with their prostate, um, just like humans do uh, when they get older and they've still got their testicles. Um, you can have catastrophic things happen, like something called a pyometra. Um, pyo is the word for pus, and mitra meaning uterus, like you know, metriosis, that type of that type of thing. Now, w- we should talk about this pyometra because I feel like th- this is something that I encounter in my specialty clinic. Uh, even though you know, sometimes I've heard vets refer to it as the glorified spay, because you are spaying the dog, but you're spaying them for this really crazy reason. So something that can happen uh, in dogs that still have their uterus is they can develop an infection inside their uterus. Uh, I can, you know, humans can get this too. Ooh, I guess it's possible. Oh, it would be so nasty if you did. But it's, it's definitely something that can happen commonly in dogs. It can happen in female cats, but it's way more rare for it to happen uh, in female cats. So here's how this usually goes. So you have a dog, it comes in through emergency and they're like, yeah, she's been really lethargic. She doesn't want to eat, but she's been drinking all this water. Um, There's some kind of like bloodiness coming from her rear end. Maybe she has a UTI and you're like, hmm. And say it's like a seven or eight year old border collie or something or, you know, some kind of largest dog. And you take her temperature and she's got this crazy high temperature. You do blood work. She's got a huge neutrophilia or a lot of white blood cells. Um, is your animal spayed? No. Oh, crap. So then you look with an ultrasound 
and you see in her belly, you're going to see these big fluid filled uterine horns is basically what they are because dogs uteruses are kind of shaped like a y um and if you see big fluid filled loops in there which is where her uterus should be the odds are they are filled with infected pus ew so what do you do about this so the poor dog is has a life-threatening infection Really, the way that uh, you can deal with this, you can deal with it in one of two ways. Um, there are two types of pyometra. So I feel like the one of the two ways can sometimes depend on what type of pyometra it is. There's what's called an open pyometra and a closed pyometra. So open is similar to the situation I was just describing where it's, oh, I think she has a UTI. She's got some bloodiness coming out of her rear end. So what that means is her body is actually leaking that bloody gross infected fluid from her vulva. So it's, it's open to the world. Now that kind of an open pyometra, sometimes you can cure that with antibiotics. This is not the first line of defense. I feel like if you have to do it this way, you can, um, the dog should really still stay in the hospital. It should be intravenous antibiotics, if anything, but we've definitely sent pyometras out the door with people who can't afford surgery with uh, oral antibiotics, some sub fluids, and a prayer. Um, really what you have to do... Oh, so then the other... Before we talk about what you should really do, the other type of pyometra um, is a closed pyometra. And that means that you don't have that discharge that's coming out from their rear end. Um, that means that there's, for whatever reason, either anatomically or like some like... Ugh, God, mucoid plug or something has plugged up the uterus and it's not draining at all. So all it's doing is just swelling inside their abdomen full of badness. Now, in both cases, surgery is your first line of defense. Take that disgusting thing out of the belly and then they will most likely have to stay in the hospital on IV antibiotics anyway because gross. So you the procedure to do a surgery for a pyometra, um, it's absolutely one of the emergency surgeries that we do. Um, I feel like in more affluent areas, you don't do it as frequently because animals tend to be spayed in America. Uh, but you will do more of these if you're in a place that has like a, a, a different type of demographic that's not routinely spaying and neutering their pet population. If they got the uteruses, they're going to have pyometras. So you prep it just like you would any other abdominal surgery. Um, this incision does have to be large because that uterus that you're taking out of there is swollen and funky and filled with pus. And so you remember how I was talking about the itty bitty cat spays incisions that you just like are barely the length of your thumbnail. This is not one of those. This is like a big, what we call exploratory laparotomy, a big exploratory surgery. So you open the dog up, you take out this big, disgusting, pus-filled uterus. It's amazing how big these things can be. It can fill their abdomen. And you very, very carefully, very carefully um, place it on the table in the OR and get rid of it as soon as you can. It's very friable, uh, friable meaning very fragile and can break apart really easily. And whoa, is the technician that moves too quick with that gigantic 
fragile, pus-filled uterus because when that sucker busts open, you will clear the hospital. It is so freaking rank. I can't even, it's like an abscess, like an abscessed uterus. You can think of it that way. It's bad. Uh, so that's the pyometra. That's a big reason um, to, to spay your animals. You do not want to get into that. That's like thousands of dollars. And it's just like any other abdominal explorer. I mean, that's thousands of dollars worth of, oops, we guess we should have gotten her spayed. Um, there was another weird spay thing that I should, that I wanted to talk about that my friend Laura experienced with her cat. Um, she had, uh, she has a little, little kitty. She's, um, I think nine months old now. She was spayed at a shelter, uh, in one of those like, you know, really high population, high density spay, neuter shelters. And kitty went home, uh, recovered beautifully, no problems. But then she started to like, kind of do the same, like, same things as a cat would do that was in heat. Like she was meowing. She was like torturing all the other kitties in the neighborhood. Like all the other cats were going crazy and trying to like chase her around. And it just like, Laura was dumbfounded because she's like, I, I swear we spayed this cat. Like what is up with this? Because she was displaying all these signs of being in heat, even though she was spayed. And they thought, oh, you know what? There may be like part of her ovary or uterus that's left in there. So they did an exploratory surgery. And this is the same. I think she went to the same place that did the spay originally. So she didn't have to pay like an additional um, price for it, which was the right thing. Um, they found a remnant of her ovary that was still in her body. So she still was producing hormones with this remnant of her ovary. And that's why she, all the kitties were going crazy in the neighborhood. That's why she was caterwauling all crazy, uh, in the house and outside. Cause she was still producing reproductive hormones, even though she wasn't like really intact. She still had this little bit of ovary that was doing its job. So, now she's all good to go. They took out that ovary and now um, Kitty is t- totally fine. Totally fine. I, I did want to talk about, uh, about C-sections because I feel like that inevitably is part of also what can happen when you don't spay or neuter, spay or neuter your animal. And it's kind of related. And I think it's kind of an amazing thing that we as veterinary technicians get to be involved in. So the origin of C-section. So this is a little bit of history. I think this is real. This is this. I'm going to nerd out for a little bit because I think it's kind of cool. So the C in C-section stands for cesarean section. Caesar, like Julius Caesar of Rome. And so why that name? So the there there's not really a definitive historical fact to see why it's a cesarean section. Um, Julius, there's a there's a, a line in history which is like Julius Caesar of Rome cut from his dead mother in her ninth month. Um, is a common origin because uh, he was, but she was already dead. So Julius Caesar of Rome was birthed by cutting open his dead mother to get him out. But there's records of C-sections happening before Julius Caesar. But it's the same type of thing where it was usually reserved for when a mother was already dead. So it was like the last, res- the last of the last resorts to get the baby out um, was if the mother had died and then they would cut her open and they'd take the baby out. Um, nowadays, obviously, that is not the case. I feel like C-sections are becoming 
way, way common, maybe more common than they should be. Watch Ricky Lake's movie about it. It's actually kind of interesting. Um, humans, human mothers are not under general anesthesia. Uh, they are, they receive an epidural. They're numbed from the waist down. Um, and the reason why this is, is it minimizes drug exposure to the baby. Now, minimizing drug exposure to the baby is also in veterinary medicine's best best interest, but we do the C-sections under general anesthesia. We just try to do them very, very quickly, um, get all the puppies out of there, and then uh, wait, you know, get, get, get mom sewn up and good to go as soon as you can. Now, I'm not exactly sure. I think it's because an epidural in a dog like you can't, this is the thing. We do epidurals in dogs. We absolutely do. Like when we're doing orthopedic procedures, like, uh, like, uh, like knee surgery on dogs, um, we absolutely will use an epidural, but that means that you have to be able to tell the living thing that has the epidural. Okay. So don't move. We're going to do some things down here and you're going to hear us working, but don't be freaked out. You can't tell that to a dog, right? So it's like you could do technically a C-section with an epidural in a dog, but Poochie's going to be totally freaked out that it can't feel its bottom half of its body. So like you, it's, you just have to put them under general anesthesia. They cannot be wiggling around and moving during surgery. Um, so they're under general anesthesia. There's usually you want a lot of technicians available because inevitably you're going to do puppy catching and puppy catching is totally awesome. So the surgeon, he's, he exposes the, the uterus and he cuts the puppies out of the uterus one by one. Here's one puppy. And what there has to be a technician standing there. And what you do is you have to stimulate them because they don't get the birthing process to like stimulate them to breathe like hello world puppy. So you have to, with a clean towel and some gloves on, you have to rub the puppy, rub the puppy to stimulate the baby puppy and they should start to like open up their mouths and breathe and their their mucous membranes get pink as their lungs expand and it should be I mean sometimes there's a lot sometimes you have like you know 10 12 puppies so there has to be a, a team that's available for puppy catching when you have these c-sections and it's kind of a big team moment you know everybody's involved and rubbing the puppies and kissing and loving on the puppy well you probably don't want to kiss on them right away they're still a little bit fresh <laughs> but like at least rubbing on the puppies and getting them to breathe um, sometimes you'll use a drug that's called doxapram or dopram which is a respiratory stimulant um, you can put it under their tongue if they're having trouble breathing breathing, if they're not expanding their lungs right away, um, suction bulbs, you want to have those ready right away. So you can suction any kind of fluid or mucus that's in their mouths. Um, and generally things go pretty well, you know, not all puppies thrive well. Like there's a reason why they have big litters, right? Is there the, having all of them be a hundred percent is sometimes a bit of a tall order. So We've been really successful lately in that we've had uh, these big litters that we've that we've been able to kind of rub and stimulate and get everybody going right away. Uh, but sometimes you don't, and I feel like the doctor will make um, doctors will make a game time decision about how much intervention they want to do with neonates. Inevitably, you know, they're, they're little peanuts. Like, you know, do you want to like getting an IV catheter in them? That's really hard. You usually have to put it in um, in their bone, like an intraosseous catheter. Do we want to do that? Do we want to try to intubate them? You know, it's like, how much do you want to torture the little baby thing that's just come into the world? So you can make game time decisions depending on how it's going. 
Uh, but generally, it's really successful. Uh, there are certain breeds that you know for sure you're going to have to do C-sections on. Um, Boston Terriers, Chihuahuas, Bulldogs, Pekingese, all these breeds, they got big old, big old round heads. And we've the humans have bred these dogs into an anatomical inability to give natural birth. How cool are we? <laughs> so Sometimes when bulldogs are pregnant, they're scheduling C-sections just like a rich lady in Manhattan because we know that they're not going to be able to give natural birth. It's dangerous for them to try because those big old heads of those babies are just going to get lodged in their birth canal. And there's just no way that that's going to happen smoothly. So I would like to close this episode with a story from uh, one of my first days in a hospital ever. Uh, when I was learning how to do this job. Um, I had a whole other previous life, I like to think of it as, um, as a stage manager for nonprofit theater. Um, and I did that for 10 years. And then I decided to do something completely different and go back to uh, back to school back to be a veterinary technician. Uh, so I did that for about, it's about two years worth of school that I did um, and then I was in uh, what they call rotations in school, these rotations that you do through various hospitals that last for about four months and you go in, you learn how to like hold animals safely and draw blood and uh, take x-rays and, uh, and, and shave hot spots, which is skin pyoderma that animals get. All those things that veterinary technicians have to know how to do on the, on the fly, um, you learn how to do by being in hospitals and meeting amazing people who teach you how to do the job really well. Uh, one of those amazing people I met uh, on one of, and I think I want to say this was like my first day, but I, it might have been, it was close to my first day. If it wasn't my first day, it was really, really close. Um, but you know, when you're when you're in a, a general practice, uh, like my old job was, you spay spaying and neutering. That's a routine thing. Like you should be able to prep for a spay or a neuter on a dog or a cat, like just like you know it, like the back of your hand. Like that should be an easy thing for a technician to do uh, to prep an animal for the doctor. And the doctor will write, of course, uh, orders for you as to, as like, as far as what drugs you're going to use and like what type of anesthesia and like what they, what tools they want, all that, what surgical equipment, blah, blah, blah. But that should be an easy thing for you to do. And so I feel like when those surgeries come up in general practice as students, you want to be involved because you want to learn that. You want that to be something that you know how to do. Um, I met uh, this wonderful technician uh, named Robin, who I worked with at my old job, and she was one of the first people who taught me about plucking cat balls. And what that is, a lot, there's a, there's some, um, varying, varying, uh, opinions about how best to remove the hair from a cat's balls prior to its neuter. Who knew? I was like, stage management is so boring compared to this job. Uh, so this, this kitty was, uh, was anesthetized and Robin was prepping it for its neuter. Uh, not in the, not in the operating room, but just out on the table in the treatment area, like you do, uh, which is totally, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like, sure. It's like my first day. Sure. Cat balls out in the treatment area, cutting them off. Sounds great. Let's do it. So you know, I was kind of hanging around her because she's really good. And I could tell right away she knew what she was doing. And I see her just grab the cat's balls and just start to rip the fur up. Well, rip is a bit of a strong word. It was more of a peel, more of a peel that was happening with this cat fur. And she sees my eyes kind of like 
unblinking <laughs> watching the work that she's doing. And she's like, it's cat balls. I was like, oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. They're a neuter. She's like, yeah, cat balls. Pluck them. You know how to pluck them? I'm like, oh, no, I, I can't say I've ever plucked cat balls. She's like, well, you can shave them too. But you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of more of a plucker. You want, you want to try it? Try it? You want to pluck some cat balls? Pluck them? <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, why? Yes, yes, I would. Yes, I would. So she taught me that like, if you kind of get the hair and kind of move it close to the skin, you know, like gently kind of peeling it away that it did. It kind of like peeled like an orange. That's what she said. Kind of peeled away the cat fur from the balls. And it actually, if you shave them, they've got a stubble inevitably. Uh, but the way that she was able to do it, it caused a lot less irritation. And uh, after the neuter, Kitty would be a lot more comfortable because it didn't have like little stubblies kind of like I- I- inverting, as you would say, like it just kind of, you know, getting into its incision and causing irritation. So um, I, I have to say, as weird as it sounds, I'm eternally grateful for people like Robin, who are able to teach me how to do the job. And uh, I feel like these are the types of moments that I'm always so grateful for now that I've been doing this for a couple years. Cat balls? Pluck them? Sure. Why not? Well, you did it again, ladies and gentlemen. You wasted another 40 minutes listening to Cat Disgusted. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you so much to everybody who's been hounding me to do another episode. I feel like, you know, I went a long time in between episodes and I got all these like questions and feedback and people like, when's the next one coming out? And it's, I I, I love that you guys um, were missing it. So again, thank you so much, everybody. And remember, don't come see me at work. 